0: Is Rob, uh, and I'm an ordinary member of, of the church here, uh, and it's a privilege to be able to bring uh, God's word to you today. Uh, let me—I always find it helpful uh, before I preach just to take a moment to pray. Um, I find it hard to just jump up uh, and kind of go into it, uh, so let me just pray now as we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful privilege and joy that there is in coming to your word and reading it and learning from it. Lord, help us to see what we do now as as important as it is. Lord, that we are not just reading uh, an old book that doesn't really matter, but Lord, we are listening to your word, your words to us. Lord, give us Uh, hearts to hear what you have to say to us today, and give me uh, the clarity to be able to bring them. Lord, take away those feelings of pride of being at the front, uh, and Lord, just help me to faithfully preach your word. Lord, we thank you for this, and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last week we started a new sermon series for the summer. It's just behind me there and it's entitled, I love that verse, now what does it mean? And there are many verses in our Bibles that are very familiar to us and that we love dearly, aren't there? And some of them are even very well known outside of Christian circles. But sometimes these verses that we know well can be taken out of context Or or sometimes they're so familiar that we realize we've never really looked at them before. Uh, And the verse that we're looking at today is is a verse in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11. Uh, And by any accounts, whatever way you look at this verse, it is a beautiful, beautiful verse. I'm going to put it up on the screen here. I hope you can see that. Uh, Let me just read it out to you in case you missed it when we read it together. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. What a beautiful verse that is to read. It's a wonderfully poetic verse. With the speech divided in two. And the repetition of this word, plans, and the certainty of God declaring it to us. And, and the content is inspiring, isn't it? Who doesn't want to be prosperous or have security and hope? Who, who doesn't want to know that their life is not just meaningless chance, but, but there's control and order behind it? Uh, you probably know that this is one of those verses that tends to get written on fridge magnets <laughs> uh, or scribbled in cards as a little message of encouragement. People hand out this verse before exams or job interviews, or, or they plaster it on social media, normally with a background like this one. Um, I, I made this, by the way. Um, I think it looks quite nice. And, and it reinforces the idea, doesn't it, with a nice little beach, that God is in control No matter what happens in our lives, he loves us and cares for us. This is an example of wonderful biblical truth brought down into a beautifully simple poetic sentence. Right? (laughs) Sort of. There is no doubt that this is a verse that emphasizes God's good leadership over our lives, and this is a verse that implicitly encourages us to trust God in all things, this good God. And this is true, and when we use this verse in that way, we're not being anti-biblical. But this is also a verse that is easily dragged out of its context. That's why we read not just that verse, but the most of chapter 29, because the you in this verse it is often taken individualistically in our culture, Whereas in Jeremiah, it applies to the nation of Israel. Uh, And the plans in this verse are are often taken as if to mean that God will honor our plans uh, and what we want to do. While the prosperity here becomes a slogan for those Christians who believe that Christianity equals immediate wealth and happiness. But it is very tempting to dive straight into the context and explain all that's going on in Jeremiah uh, and to try to sort out some of the myths of this verse. But there's a second danger if we do that, in that we fail to take the time to look at the actual words of the verse uh, and see what it actually says. So that's what we're going to do now. We're going to look at what the verse actually says, first of all, and then we're going to move on and think a little bit about the context. So it's pretty simple today, I think what the verse says, and then the context. So do have your Bibles open with me. I need to now find it. Uh, To Jeremiah chapter 29 uh, and verse 11. It is on page 790 if you've lost it. So do have that open so you can be checking what I'm saying. I'm not making it up. Uh, And as we look at this verse, the first thing that we see is that there are some plans. It's repeated three times, that word. And all of us have plans, don't we? We like to think that our plans are watertight and everything will go as planned in our lives. But we know ultimately that there are many areas of our lives that we're not in control of and that even our best laid plans are ultimately just hopeful ideas that may or may not come true. But this verse, thankfully, is not talking about our plans These plans are plans that God has, for I know the plans I have, declares the Lord. And these plans are plans that God has for his people. That's the you. And although this verse doesn't say it explicitly, God's plans are not hopeful ideas, but concrete and solid. His plans always come to fruition. God knows the plans. He has for his people. He's not got plans and then forgotten about them, or or dropped off to sleep, or awkwardly done that thing where we realize we've double booked, uh, and it's not going to happen what we've planned. God knows the plans he has for his people, and he declares it to them. And and so the first thing we're to see in this verse is that God is in control. Just on the screen there, just... (laughs) But control, as we can be, as we know in our culture, a terrible and evil thing. When people have power over and control over another group of people, very often that can become abusive, domineering, and tyrannical. And so far, the idea that God has plans for his people might not be a good thing at all. The plans God has for his people could be very bad plans indeed. But the next line tells us that these plans involve prospering his people and not bringing them into harm. We get a little bit worried sometimes about this word prosper and its ties with wealth. We'll kind of come back to that towards the end. But for now, we are to see that on some level at least, God's plans for his people involve good things for them. It involves some kind of prosperity, whatever that is. And that comes because God is a good God, not an evil tyrant. And the final bit of this verse further emphasizes God's goodness in that he is giving his people hope and a future. And so to add to our description of God being in control, we now want to also say from this verse that God loves his people, right? I think that's a reasonable summary of this verse. God is in control, he knows the plans he has for us, his people, and he, and he loves his people too. The plans he has are good. And, and so that's the verse. We, we could stop there uh, and we could go home. It's an important message, a meaningful message, I think, one that is inspiring and uplifting. And as we live through life's events, to know that God is in control uh, and does good for us, he loves us, it is a great truth, Surely. And the context does not teach us anything less than what's on the screen there. So if you go away learning one thing, that's pretty good. But the content context does enrich and build our understanding of this verse so that we don't misunderstand that and take it in the wrong direction. So what we'll do now is we'll dive into the context of the book of Jeremiah. So for quite some time now in the Bible story the people of Israel have been a large, powerful, and wealthy kingdom. But recently, things have been going rather pear-shaped. The kingdom has split in two, with the larger kingdom of Israel in the north and the smaller kingdom of Judah in the south, which I think you can see on that map there. And all of Israel's kings in the north were evil and godless. And their evil ways eventually led to their destruction by the kingdom of Assyria. Uh, And most of Judah's kings were also evil, but there were some good and godly kings. But nevertheless, they suffered the same fate as Israel and were eventually conquered and captured by Babylon after 345 years since the split kingdom. And when Babylon conquered Judah, they took many people back into, into, into Babylon in what is known as the exile. And during all of this turbulent period, God raised up people who were called prophets. And their job was to be the mouthpieces of God. Their job was to speak God's words to the people. And some of these prophets lived in Israel and did that in the north. Some prophets lived in Judah and did that to the south, and some prophets even went into exile and did that in captivity. And the prophets preached, essentially, that God's judgment was coming if the people did not stop behaving as they were. And so the prophets are often quite bleak and even violent to read. And sometimes the prophets were listened to, uh, and the kings and the, and the people started doing different things, but very often the prophets were ignored and even persecuted. Uh, and Jeremiah, the author of the book that we're reading today, was one of these prophets. He was a prophet in the, to the smaller kingdom of Judah during its final years before its destruction. Uh, and for many years, the prophets in Judah, including Jeremiah, had witnessed the people doing ungodly things and been urging them to repent and turn back to God. And Jeremiah in particular is known as the weeping prophet because of how strongly he lamented the fate of the people if they didn't turn back to God. You see that? Jeremiah had a very, very difficult life and he endured much persecution but he continued to faithfully urge the people to come back to God but despite his insistent warnings he was not successful the people did not listen their problem the people in judah was that they had a false sense of their own security what on earth does that mean <laughs> the people in judah they had god's promises and God's blessing, but they thought they were untouchable. They thought that nothing could go wrong in their lives as long as they went to the temple and offered some sacrifices every now and then. Their false sense of security came from thinking that their religion was about external actions rather than knowing God personally. Now, you might think that the conquest and the destruction of Judah shattered their false sense of security. But in some ways, the people actually remained exactly the same. In Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 1 and 2, if you flick back over the page, we're told that this text that we're reading today, in verse 1, is a letter sent from Jeremiah in Jerusalem to the people in exile. Okay? Okay? So this is sent after some people have gone into exile, but before Judah is completely destroyed in between. And this letter, therefore, gives us a bit of a picture of the mentality of these exiles in in Babylon. And you might think that these exiles are thinking, oh, no, (laughs) look what's just happened. (laughs) This is terrible. And maybe some of them were. But in this letter... We discover in verses 8 and verses 9 that there are some false prophets in Babylon. And these false prophets are, are effectively teaching the people in Babylon what they wanted to hear. That their exile was nothing more than a small minor blip in the great success story that is Judah. And they would be back in Judah within a couple of years, no problem. These prophets were feeding their false sense of security. Don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. You'll be right back in Judah in no time at all. And one of the things that Jeremiah is doing here is he's saying, No, 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 no. You've got it all wrong. The sin that has been going on in Judah really matters. And you're not staying in Babylon for a couple of years and then coming back. This is not a holiday. You're going to be there for 70 years. And that's why Jeremiah begins this letter, did you notice, by telling the people to settle down and build homes in Babylon. They're there for the long haul. And now we can start to imagine how these exiles to whom Jeremiah is writing to must feel. They have just endured at least 10 years, if not more, of violent warfare. They have just been torn from their homes and their land. They've lost possessions and wealth, maybe even members of their family. They would be broken, desperate, disheartened, and angry. And now Jeremiah is writing this letter to them and saying that their one bit of comfort, that everything would be okay and they'll be back in a couple of years, is completely false. Many of these exiles would be thinking, hang on a minute, I'm 40 I'm 40 years old. In 70 years, I'll be dead. (laughs) I'm not going back to Judah. This is great for my grandkids, but what about me? And so straight away, we see that Jeremiah chapter 29, it is not a nice wishy-washy passage of how much God loves his people and cares for them, but a crushing blow to the people's false sense of security. This passage is simply not what we think it is. The people would have hated to have received this letter. It it didn't fit with their picture of themselves. Jeremiah is not writing primarily to console a dejected people worried about the future. He's writing to bring them down a peg or two to make them see the reality of their own sin and its consequences. Do you get that? This passage is not what we think it is. But you will notice on this slide behind me that there are three little dots, which tend to indicate that there's more to come. And all of a sudden, as we're reading this passage, Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11 has become exceedingly strange. (laughs) If Jeremiah is writing, as I say, to f- challenge the false security of the people in exile, why does he write verse 11? <laughs> it's really encouraging. And actually, we suddenly realize that this whole passage feels a little bit contradictory. I wonder whether you've ever been in a situation where you were warned not to do something, and you did it anyway. There's a great little story of me when I was a child and my mum was cleaning some windows. It's good, isn't it? And I thought that it would be a good idea, I've never really understood cleaning windows, to smudge my hands all over these windows. Why not? And my mum turned to me and said very clearly, don't smudge the windows because I'm cleaning them And if you do, you will be in trouble. And my eyebrows raised. I sensed an opportunity for mischief. (laughs) I was very young, it wasn't my fault. And what did I do? I smudged the windows. And you knew what's coming now. (laughs) I'd been warned. I'd done something anyway. Anyway. And now the punishment was obviously coming. I didn't have a leg to stand on. And I think that this is an appropriate story for this passage. The people have just had 345 years, roughly, of godlessness... And 345 years of the prophet's constant warnings to stop behaving as they are. In fact, that's what Jeremiah says to these people in exile in verse 19. For you have not listened to my words, declares the Lord, words that I sent to them again and again. And so when we get to verse 4 of this chapter, and we hear this is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile, we know what's coming, don't we? we're expecting judgment. The people don't have a leg to stand on. They've been warned, they've done it anyway, and now the punishment is coming as a result. Surely God is going to say to these people, right, that's it. I've told you time and again, but now it's over. And so when we read in verse 5, when God says, build houses and settle down and live peacefully, that may have been a challenge to the Israelites because they thought they weren't staying there, but we're reading it and think, that's a bit lenient. <laughs> and by the time we get to verse 11, and God's telling the people that he has plans to prosper them and look after them, and we're thinking, what? What on earth is going on? Why, are these pe- why is judgment not coming to this rebellious people? Well, we've already made the point that God is in control, and that God loves his people that's the main point i think of verse 11 that's what jeremiah 29:11 is primarily fundamentally saying but when we use this passage to make us feel a bit better in a time of sadness we totally miss the fullest force of this passage and the fullest force of god's relationship with his people because this passage is not saying don't worry if you flunk your exams it'll all be okay because God's in control. That is true. (laughs) But what this passage is really getting us to see is that God is in control and God loves his people even when they don't love him back. This passage is not what we think it is, but it is so much more than what we think it is. I've gone on too many. This is not a nice wishy-washy passage of God's nice love for us or or a cute description of how everything's going to be okay because God cares for us. This passage is not what we think it is because it reveals that our sin, Israelite sin and our sin, is really, really serious. And yet this passage is so much more than what we think it is because we realize that it is a dramatic description of God's grace grace to unrepentant sinners. Even though we don't love God at times, he continues to love and care for us. So how do we read Jeremiah twenty-nine eleven? It's all a bit confusing now, isn't it? <laughs> is it? Is he being encouraging? Is he challenging them? Um, I don't really know. What this is, I think, to the Israelites who received this letter in, in 497 BC or whenever it is, is a clear and tangible indication and condemnation of their sin and its terrible consequences. They have believed that they were untouchable because they were God's people and that their sin doesn't matter. And this passage completely quashes that belief. And yet Jeremiah 29 and verse 11 is a message of great hope in that despite their sin, God has not and will not abandon them. Sin really matters and yet God continues to be gracious. What the people in in 497 BC made of this, we don't know. We don't have their reply. But what we in 2018 recognize in, in God's inspired words through Jeremiah, in this dual condemnation and grace at the same moment, is what we would call the gospel. For those of you who have never heard of this word before, the gospel is the New Testament answer to the question of how people can be punished for their sin and yet saved. And Jesus Christ is that answer, because it is Jesus who, in dying on the cross, took the punishment that God's people deserved, enabling them to stand before God and enjoy the blessings of a relationship with him. In Christ Jesus, God is just because sins are punished and gracious because the punishment does not land on us. And this is the gospel that is taught in the New Testament and that applies to us today. We are, in essence, exiled people. People who have chosen to go our own way and trust in our own gods. We have rejected God's rule and God's good commands in our lives. And the biblical word for that is sin. And the punishment is coming, We deserve exile and to be cast off from God's presence. And yet, in Jesus Christ, the punishment does not land on our shoulders, but on his. And in his resurrection from the dead, we are enabled to enjoy a wonderful relationship with God our Father, free from the consequences of our sin. And so now, we read this verse for all its gospel worth when God says that he knows the plans that he has for the people of Judah, yes, he is speaking literally about bringing them back to Judah, but he's also saying that his plans for his people is that despite their sinful behavior, which really matters, they will not be utterly destroyed because of Christ. And when God says he will prosper the people, he's not speaking about giving them wealth and earthly happiness immediately. They've got 70 years in captivity. He's speaking about the spiritual prosperity of a relationship with God through Jesus. Can you now see the fullest force of this verse? That God in his mercy and his goodness loved and loves his people even when they don't love him back and that he loved them so much and that he's in control so much that he sent his one and only son, whom he loves, to die on a cross for them and for us. This verse is simply not what we think it is. It reveals the extent of our sin and we don't like that. But it is so much more than what we think it is in that God loves us despite it. Friends, if you're going to miss the force of this verse, you're going to miss it in two ways, one of two ways. Either you will read this and think, God is great. (laughs) He loves me. He's got my back. Everything's going to be okay. And it doesn't really matter what I do. And if that is you today then you have the same false security as the people of Judah before their exile. And you need to see the warning in this passage and recognize that it should unhinge you if you feel that way. But the other way that you might miss this verse is that you focus so much on the judgment and the sin that you fail to see that this verse is fundamentally encouraging and joyful and the beauty in this verse of what God has done for you. If that is you, if you're focusing too much on the judgment here, then go home and read this verse for all of its worth. The gospel is so much more than you and I think it is. Let me pray for us now.